Hello and welcome to Cope. That's the name we're going by now, sucking on that copium. How are you, Matt? Pretty good, thank you, yep. Um, Copium, mm, yummy. Um, so, normally, obviously, we go through the minutes of the last meeting that you uh, keep. Uh, I'm sure you've got them all piled up somewhere. But we, And then we talk about ongoing stories that everyone else has forgotten about, but we will keep looking at. But we can't do that this week because we've just got so much to talk about. There's so many... I mean, there's so many news stories that we're not even going to talk about that I'd like to. Like, for example, this Elon Musk star satellite thing in the ukraine oh, yeah. in this. <laughs> yeah. um, but we, we don't have time all right we just don't have time for it because this is uh this is 9-11 week so it's a uh, national or sorry international conspiracy week and uh, we'll be talking about conspiracies i mean we, we always talk about conspiracies but this time we're solely focused on conspiracies i had a dream about this place Starting, of course, with my favorite conspiracy, which is uh, Tower 7. Oh, Tower yeah. Tower 7, yeah. The where, third where the building aliens... on... The third, the third building, building to left. collapse. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> where all the aliens are hidden and mm. I don't know what else is there, like um, OJ's other glove. <laughs> and anything, uh, any, all, all the missing pieces. The the uh, the blueprints for the pyramids, whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny because um because it is nine eleven. My TikTok feed has just been full of conspiracy stuff and a lot of building seven stuff, which I haven't looked at for years. Mm. And it's just yeah, the building seven stuff is just incredible. Um, I don't know what you think about it, Matt. And I don't care. So that's the end of that section. Let's move on to what we're actually going to talk about. Good. First, before, <laughs> off the hook there. First thing that I want to mention is uh, before we talk about full conspiracies, because I think, well, this is a full conspiracy, but um, it's not what we're going to focus on. It's just that I think this is a good introduction to a lot of things that I think help help you understand the conspiracy mentality, the con- conspiracy mindset, because a lot of people instantly reject conspiracies, uh, and I think. What I want to pr- try and do today is um, it's basically like, I don't want to say red pill, but whatever pill it would be, I want to get more people on board with conspiracies. So if you're a doubter of mm. conspiracies, this can be a guide. And obviously, if you know that it's all silly, then watch this harmless video. You're not going to be convinced. Mm. You know, you're, you're stronger than that. I mean, who are we? to get inside your mind and start making you, you know, not believe the things that you've believed all your life. Stay strong with your convictions. That's that's what I say to anybody that's, that's skeptical about conspiracies. Um, and centers in the Labour Party. <laughs> <laughs> We're starting with that. So Rory Stewart. Oh, you know yeah. About this? Yeah, Rory Stewart went on Navarra Media. Uh, I haven't actually watched the full interview. Like most people, I just watched the one clip, which they put out themselves, to be fair, where he said he thought it was mad and disgusting that Jeremy Corbyn had been kicked out of the Labour Party. Yeah, yeah, I did see Uh, that. And then he got a lot of pushback from that on Twitter by by serious people like Guardian journalist Sonia Soda, who uh, we're big fans of on this channel. I've done a lot of work on on her. One of, one of the biggest videos I've put out on Twitter was about her, which is a clip from my Corbyn conspiracy. Uh, 
documentary, I suppose, for want of a better word, um, Suspension of Disbelief, which you can watch on YouTube, which is all about the media's portrayal of the anti-Semitism fiasco, whatever you want to call it, uh, which came back into the news in the exact same way this time. So uh, Rory Stewart not even commenting on anti-Semitism, which, which is the first thing you always have to comment on anti-Semitism, just said that he thought it was mad and disgusting that Corbyn had been kicked out because, well, he was the former leader and he'd been a Labour MP for so long and he represented a major part of left-wing thinking and Labour history, right? Um, and then Tonya Soda came out and said on Twitter, I can't believe you said this without mentioning anti-Semitism or the EHRC. <laughs> and obviously, if you want to have a full conversation about this, you should mention those things. Um, <laughs> and he he then backtracked a little bit and said he did think that, you know, there was anti-Semitism problem under Labour. And what his point was that he wasn't saying that, he wasn't denying that, but he was saying that this was not the right way to go about, or I guess he was implying that, that Corbyn being suspended and obviously in the end basically kicked out was not the right, was an overreaction or not the right way to handle it. Um, and I think, yeah, I don't know what Rory Stewart was expecting, uh, it seems a bit naive that he didn't think there would be a lot of pushback on this because there's a lot riding, there's a lot of people's careers in the media, but also a, a lot of Labour's positioning now is riding on the fact that this was a big issue for the Labour Party, anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And so any any high, you know, uh, any figure with a big platform who's coming out to say anything sceptical about that is going to get pushback on it. Uh, but I just want to mention the EHRC, which is what Sonia Soda goes to straight away. Uh, and the way, and this is, we're going to get talk about with, with conspiracy theories, this idea of uh, leaning on institutions and on report findings, uh, not even like the specifics in them. And you just mention the EHRC because there's a narrative built around the EHRC that the report was very damning. Firstly, mm -hmm. and secondly, that the HRC is an unquestionable body, mm -hmm. um, you know, independent uh, thought that would never, this, this completely non-political, apolitical. Uh, and the way that that is upheld and cannot be questioned. And even though Corbett didn't actually question it, it also is pushed into the, the narrative that he did question it. And that in itself was damning and that's anti-Semitic and stuff. Because there's, because Sonia Soda, that's Sonia Soda's position. But really, the EHRC findings uh, were not very much. And so it's actually very hard. Like Corbyn is accused of undermining the EHRC. But you can't, it's really hard to do that. They, ba they barely found anything. What <clears throat> Corbyn undermines is the Labour's reaction to the EHRC and the broader media narrative that it was a big issue. And that's always been been the thing. There is a, there's a media narrative which looks at things like the EHRC and its kind of pathetic findings, but then draws out of that that it was there were really serious findings, and then doubles down on and the EHRC are unquestionable, right? Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. like the media narrative is now unquestionable because it's supposedly based in the fact of the EHRC, and, mm -hmm. and it's this mm -hmm. kind of building of of these kind of uh, They are just narratives. They're just people's opinions, but mm. kind of structured as if they're not, and and they're structured as if they're not political. Sonia Soda's reliance on the EHRC shows a, a political position that she's coming from, where other reports, in this case, <clears throat> specifically anti-Semitism and Labour Party, the Ford report, mm. which, so the, diff the difference between the EHRC and the Ford report is not much, but the EHRC despite not finding very much in the Labour Party, doesn't openly question the general idea that there was that anti-Semitism was a problem. In fact, the idea, I mean, the whole thing was the EHRC investigating it in itself already condemns it. The EHRC barely does anything. It's a very lazy organization, right? It barely mm. gets out of bed to do any investigating. 
into the huge amounts of racism that is all over this country in every political party and every institution. Rarely looks into any of it. So the fact that it was looking into the Labour Party is, is already the, the damningness of it. And then the fact that it found any, a small amount, really shows the Labour Party doesn't have that much racism. If this organisation can come in and barely find any. But anyway, the, the point is that the Ford report, on the other hand, openly questions, it's still not very strong, but it openly starts to question the narrative of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and whether it was an issue at all. And so the Ford report is barely mentioned, it's buried. The other thing about the Ford report is that Ford himself won't shut up about it and will, and if it is brought up, then who's the person you're going to go to? You're going to go to Ford and he's going to, he's going to tell, and he's actually, I, I feel, has, has moved to an even more radical position than he had in the report since its release, partly because of the reaction to it and the fact that it was buried. Mm. The mm -hmm. HRC is like a faceless, but like you never hear anyone from them. You just hear it from journalists and Labour people reporting on it. But anyway, the Ford report is buried, whereas the HRC is unquestionable and brought, and you have to bring it up apparently whenever you mention Corbyn. But then you look back in history, you look at the Chilcot report. Mm. Tony Blair rejected the findings, basically. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he mu much more his language against it was much stronger than Corbyn's language against the HRC, which was, mm. which he didn't have any language against. He didn't, <laughs> mentioning that, right? But <laughs> the other thing is the Leveson inquiry. Mm. The Tories ditched the second part of that. Mm. Um, and the other thing about that is um, with those inquiries, particularly Leveson, they're inquiries into the party. The leadership is a part of that. The leadership by the time AHRC came out had changed. The focus, you would imagine, like in a pra in practical terms, would be on the Labour Party implementing some of the things, or all of the things in the AHRC, and the pressure would be on the Labour Party doing right by this yeah. report that was that's so lauded, yeah. rather than on every word not about it, in, but indirectly around this topic of it, of the former leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there is there it, very... It isn't even, in the, it isn't even in the party anymore, or isn't even... Well, it isn't in the party know. anymore, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yes, and, all, and, and that's the thing, you know, the way that it's being implemented, there's been a lot of um, controversy over that and, and, and disagreement with, with what it said and what it wanted to be... what. What it was actually asking to be to be implemented in the Labour Party, like uh, the independent um, complaints department stuff. So Labour have been sort of putting together something about, but there's various groups involved mm. um, who you know have looked at the HRC and what it's calling for and are saying, well, this is what we should do. This is what we should do. But this is barely covered in the media because nobody really cares about the finding of the EHRC. And what it actually wants to implement mm -hmm. in the Labour Party, it's a it's a political weapon. And all of these things, all these institutions, reports, they're all political weapons. Um, in the in the way that you either the organisation that you represent and the political uh, battle that you're fighting, you either accept and promote the report and thus the institution behind it, and you say that they're unquestionable and they're what you you know what you need to uh, uh we need to abide by this and and you sort of bring it into this idea of you know this is the great british institutions this is why britain's great we have these organizations that are outside of any sort of political faction no we don't nowhere does in the world it's all political all of them are involved and you by promoting this one over that one and this report over that one are pushing for a political position and sonia soda i'm not sure she knows that which is very scary for a political journalist or she does know it, and she's just uh, she's very cynical, but very good at, at hiding it, which uh, I give her credit for. Uh, just uh, on an, on a side note, before I forget, uh, Navarra Media coverage on this has been quite good, I'd say. Uh, there's been a, I feel like there's been a quiet sea change at Navarra Media over the last few months. Uh, I don't watch it enough <laughs> to know whether Rivka Brown, who um, presented an episode last week and was co-host this week when we we're talking about um just i think it was just yesterday talking about rory stewart um mm. she's always been 
a sort of talking head on Navarro Media, but I feel like, I don't know, I'd never seen her presenting it before until last week. I don't know when she started presenting it, but she seems to be more, more prominent on the channel. Um, and she's been very adamant in calling out this kind of bullshit in a way that Navarro Media weren't. And to be fair, I think a lot of people in the heat of the anti-Semitism crisis during Corbyn's leadership uh, were pretty bad on this, to be honest. But that mm. also came, the leadership weren't very good at leading on it. So that's another thing. Mm. Mm. But definitely Navarra were bad in the subsequent years and when Starmer became leader and it became very clear what was going on. They hadn't really been taking a strong line on it. They seem to be doing so now, which is really good to see. So yes, uh, Rivka Brown. Um, yeah, I think she's done some great stuff on this. And I think this is this is really interesting because, no, you're excused. <laughs> Uh, because, yeah, I think there's like, um, uh, there's de definitely, if, if you see the institutions like Navarra coming out to bat more for questioning the anti-Semitism crisis kind of stuff, this makes it a little bit more difficult. Uh, it, it shows the politics of it. If you're having more of a, a line in the sand between organizations media organizations and individuals that claim to be or are on the left and a more centrist thing i don't know where this puts owen jones though that's what i find interesting because owen jones obviously has been on navarro a lot i assume he's still involved to some degree but he's also um a, a journalist for the guardian who are not changing tact on this as we saw from sonia soda uh so It'll be interesting to see. I haven't seen any anything that he's say, saying about it, but he's in a really difficult position now if he's going to try and go with the Navarra line and uh, the Guardian line. Anyway, we've spoken about this enough already. Um, it, let's move on to Julian Assange. Unless you have any thoughts. Do you have any thoughts, Matt? Uh, well, only that I was watching Norman Finkelstein this week, um, and he was talking about the similar processes that... Uh, that defeated uh, Bernie Sanders in the United States. Um, and it was the, they, they struggled to weaponize uh, anti-Semitism against, uh, uh, against a Bernie. Jewish man. Because he's Jewish. <laughs> um, but, I wouldn't uh, put it past them though, to be honest. Yeah, well, um, I mean, even Noam Chomsky's been called, you know, self-hating Jew and all that kind of thing. So um, it, well, they're all- people. Sorry, yeah, go on. Yeah, this is, you know, it, it's just, those kind of processes are, uh, yeah, uh, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, frustrating, frustrating. But yeah, I think we've covered that. Good. Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting article, which I think also links into this and everything else that we talk about on the show, and specifically about, I think, conspiracy theories, um, is uh, an article called "Torture the Evidence" by Daniel Finn. You can Google that, and it's about lawfare. Um. And how lawfare, uh, play, I mean, it, the, I think that the, the problem obviously is with conspiracy theories is that the, the instant idea is that it's a secret cabal of people uh, masterminding uh, plots and carrying them out um, mm. and then giving a completely false narrative for what happened. So it's like, you know, the classic conspiracy theory is... Um, well, say, say you got like Kennedy and 9-11. So Kennedy would be that um, he was, the, the official story is that he was uh, shot in Dallas by a lone gunman. And um, the guy was just a crazy guy and had nothing to do with the Secret Service. And that's the official story. And the real narrative is that, you know, it was a hologram and that he'd been killed six months later <laughs> in a lab, you know, and it's like, it's like that that isn't obviously really and it's the same with uh 911 you know that the planes were holograms the towers you know were not were demolished or whatever at the same time as they they shined the light you know it's like no like no there i know you almost feel like some of these conspiracy theories come out of a kind of misinformation um approach by the sort of people that are actually more involved in it it's like with 9-11 since it is 9-11 week um 
there are there are some serious concerns about building seven and what happened there mm. um which have actually uh very little to do with what happened to the twin towers the only thing that would be the connection would be knowing the day at which the terrorists were planning to, to do the strike mm. or roughly knowing when it would be um and the idea of the cia and stuff knowing certain information and not acting on it i'm not saying that is what happened in 9 11 but that is a very different idea and, and and also not not the cia not like everybody in the cia is like september 11th is coming up it's going to be interesting isn't it you know it's like no there are people who are working in certain parts of the intelligence community who are no who are actively involved in al-qaeda and spying on al-qaeda and uh i mean those sort of people are also heavily often involved in what's going on um because they are you know if you're if you're spying on something like al-qaeda then then you are going to actually know people that are involved in al-qaeda you're going to also have people that you've put in yourself yeah so it's a very complex relationship and this is really what conspiracies mm. are about. They're about relationships and factions. Uh, and, and when things go wrong, covering your own ass. And so you may get information that you don't want to tell to other people because it might implicate you in some way into something else. So, for example, like the, I don't have any evidence of this, and I've never heard this about 9-11, but this is something that happens just generally in the world all the time, is... You make a mistake in your job because you don't do the right protocol or whatever. And that means that something is then going to happen in the future that will uh, implicate, implicate you. Well, you can implicate yourself by pointing out that you made the mistake and pointing out what is going mm. to happen, right? Or you can keep your mouth shut. And anybody else that knows about it, you can say, look, can you keep your mouth shut as well? I'll, you know, I, I know this about you or I'll do you this favor. And then what happens is the bad thing happens that you knew about. But it could, you couldn't stop it because you didn't want yourself to be implicated. And that's just mm -hmm. a very common thing that happens. You know, I do on a daily basis, <laughs> constantly covering my own <laughs> shitty mistakes I'm always making. Uh, knowing, you know, you know, you know, you know, that thing at work where you just, you just know, like some, that like you didn't, like you were the one that's supposed to just change the fucking ink in the photocopy or something. And you didn't. And then the next day is like a presentation and you know, your boss is going to go into print out this like speech, whatever. And you're like, fuck it. I've just like pretend that I have no idea about any of it. You know, it's, I mean, it's just basic stuff like that, but there was no, and this is the thing about conspiratorial thinking, like people that completely reject it. There is no idea of the idea that con the conspiracy is just a mixture of incompetence and relationships and people with, with their own ag agendas, their own careers, um, trying trying to sort of navigate the world. It's, you know, the idea that is put in your head about conspiracies is that it is this, this sort of, I mean, yeah, this sort of uh, cabal of, like very organized secretive individuals that have total control of, of what's going on in any sort of situation, which is a bit far-fetched. Uh, and mm. so if you're going to just immediately jump on that as being the only way that conspiracies can work, then yes, of course, no wonder you reject it all outright. Anyway, let's talk about Julian Assange. Um, you told me that he, the case will be, uh, wrapped up pretty soon he'll be uh, either in prison or a free man yeah well i think there are um, other stages um still to go but it is reaching a really critical point um i've seen uh stella assange julian's uh wife uh and craig murray who's the uh the the reporter really who's uh, attended everything and has reported everything um and ended up going to prison um last yeah. year uh weirdly in a kind of connected well a kind of ostensibly completely disconnected case due to some misreporting that he apparently did about uh nicola sturgeon or not misreporting but i think he uh he broke some kind of uh journalistic rule of, of some kind 
Um, yeah, and they and they and they really threw the book at him. Um, he's out now. He's out now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's and he's he's okay. So he's continuing to report on uh, Julian Sanchez's uh, situation. Um, and he's the most sort of close to the ground uh, reporter who's writing about it on a very regular basis. But I've seen um, literally over the past, say, 48 hours, I've seen Stella Assange and uh, Craig Murray uh, put out material, uh, which indicates uh, the... Uh, Julian Assange is currently in Belmarsh Prison in London and has been held there for four and a half years um, without any proper trial or anything. Um, but that's, and he's... that's nothing. That's nothing compared to his last... Well, how long was he in um, the embassy for? He was in the embassy, I think, for eight years from uh, late 2000, August 2010, I think, until uh, about February 2019. Um, so he must be just getting used to the prison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he can do another another four <laughs> years there. It would be the same as what he did in the, in the embassy. Um, but the the... The indications are that there'll be uh, uh, an announcement very soon from the British government announcing an extradition uh, hearing date. And that hearing date might well be very short. Uh, it might just be, you know, a day, a day's hearing or something like that. And so, so it looks like it's going to happen. The extradition or the decision on it. What is officially the decision on extradition, but the, obviously the British government is so hand in glove with the American and British uh, military industrial complex that the decision's almost certainly been made um, to the extradition will happen in uh, a matter of weeks. I think that if there is sufficient protest and fuss being made in the coming window, it could actually make a difference to the case. Because um, one of the main things they've relied on is just public ignorance and public apathy um, and a complete lack of reporting um, about this uh, this whole situation. Uh, so I do think that if a bit of noise could be made around about now, um, it's a good time to it's a good time to be involved in in that campaign. Yeah, that that would be. Uh, yeah, I don't want to be too negative. I mean, I think you would agree that it's unlikely that that enough people would come out. They'd be organised, but but it's true that if that did happen. Um, the, the, the case there's a lot, is very weak. The, the, the case is incredibly weak, um, but the uh, uh, but public support could make a lot of difference. Uh, often in these extradition cases, apparently it does all come down to public opinion. Um, as Craig Murray pointed out the other day, um, when if and when Julian is extradited, it will be front page headlines on every newspaper in the world, um, and so, and there'll be suddenly this. Uh, this this light will be shone yeah. on what I what I think we could consider to be a um, uh, you know a, a Dracula uh, uh, a, a Dracula policy, which is one that doesn't survive the sunlight. So I, I do think that. <laughs> I mean, have you heard that one of those before? Um, no. So, um... uh, so I think, uh, I, 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 although I think that you know the actual day of extradition might be too late, but um, I think the the coming. Two, three, four weeks. Uh, if something could be done, uh, that'd be great. You've got to remember that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of kind of what I might call pregnant support um, for Julian Assange as well. The big five um, media uh, organizations of the United States uh, came out about nine months ago, um, issuing a joint statement, as you may remember, saying that they supported. The, uh, the uh, they no longer supported the uh, imprisonment of Julian Assange, and they wanted to see it um, sorted out. Um, wait, wait, a, can, sorry, no, no longer supported. Did they? Did they actually? Well, I, I can't. I can't remember exactly how they phrased it, to be honest with you. But that uh, they worked with Julian Assange, all these the major editors of the um, of the big newspapers um, in the early two thousand and tens. Um, but then I think that they there was a general view that he should be arrested, that he hadn't done the right thing with the release of the um, of the documentation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But they've they've come out now um, to say you know enough is enough. But there's also um, uh, there was a delegation of uh, Australian politicians who uh, went up to uh, I think it was to Congress I think just a couple of days ago. Uh, and it was quite funny. They described themselves as um, ranging from the hard left 
to the hard right. Uh, and they said, the only things that we agree about, um, this is how important it, you know, it is to, to a lot of people. They said, the only things that we, actually, that we all agree about is uh, the weather and Julian Assange. <laughs> so, but they, you know, they, they don't actually of, agree. They don't agree about the weather. They I probably don't agree about the weather because it would be climate, climate change. change. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and of course, over the last year or so, um, Stella Assange, who's done an incredible uh, uh, resilient uh, public relations job, although, you know, she's doing it from the heart, really, but um, she's actually gone around to speak to a lot of the uh, major media influences, uh, influences including, uh, and got a very sympathetic hearing from Piers Morgan, from Jordan Peterson, from uh, Russell Brand, and uh, and others. Uh, so, although the uh, the campaign to uh, to release Julian Assange has not coalesced uh, into um, into a really strong kind of street movement. Uh, I would say that there are a lot of pockets of support that have particularly developed over the past year uh, uh, all across the media, including at the highest levels of media. One of the reasons that the, that the, that the media organisations uh, wanted to make that statement, um, saying that they supported the release of Julian, um, is because they they realised that, uh, well, th they know that it would basically, if, if he is extradited, it will be a legal precedent, which will mean that they basically can't do national security reporting anymore because any kind of handling of um, classified documentation or um, uh, receiving information from a, uh, from a source inside the um, national security uh, establishment, all of that would, would you know, be, basically be outlawed. So they know how important that is. But, the, but at the same time, they're playing a kind of canny game because I think what they're really doing is... Um, Although they did make a thing of that on the day, then they're not being that loud about it because I think they just want the problem to go away. They, um, uh, they're, uh, again, it's it's the more light that's shone on it, the worse they look because the reality is that the newspapers treated Julian Assange very badly, um, and. Uh, and have kind of backstabbed and betrayed him over the past decade. Uh, so I think they just wanted to be on the right side of history by saying, yeah, we think this should be done like this. But um, yeah, I think there's something. But I'm not quite sure if they've put the money where their mouth is yet. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a similar issue, I think, around bringing it all back home to Antimpton Lay Party, just because we started off talking about that. It is similar. It's similar to Russiagate as well. It's, it's misusing yeah. evidence. And and because the newspapers and in this case Navara and like I say I think Navara doing good work on this at the moment I don't want to like shit on Navara all the time just sometimes uh, they they're implicated to some degree right. in the narrative that was spun and so now that they're trying to change narrative um, they can do that to some degree by reporting on what's happening now in its in a different way. But really, if you want to actually discuss, challenge the initial, like the, the way that the narrative, you have to challenge how the narrative was built. So Sonia Soda and people like that will just throw in EHRC, anti-Semitism. You've got to mention these things. It's like, yeah, you do have to mention them. And you have to, therefore, if you want to go with the narrative that it was mad and disgusting that Corbyn was kicked out, you have to mention why those issues are also not actually arguments for it and and therefore mm -hmm. you have to go deep back into how the anti-semitism crisis was was managed by the media and actually therefore start to look back at your own reporting on it and it's the same with the assange case right the guardian can come out now and say look we don't think he should be extradited um it's bad for british freedoms for the press freedoms for the media um investigating government corruption but if they really want to challenge why it's you know you want why has it got to this point and actually explain um that Cor that uh i was say corbin that assange uh is in this place right now in this position um it's because that he wasn't backed at the crucial time which was mm. when the leaks came out and there was mass support for him and and th there was obviously mass interest in what the leaks said 
because and that was the very time that he was being dragged into this thing legally where he couldn't move he had to seek shelter in the embassy and i think we should go back to a bit of that because uh unlike them we weren't doing anything at the time i certainly wasn't and so well you probably were <laughs> sorry i definitely wasn't uh you probably were doing the right thing um but uh, all i'm saying is that we don't have to worry about being um implicated in the, the mess that was made at that time and the way to undo it is to actually discuss what happened all the way back in, in 2012 actually and how that has slowly, just like the anti-Semitism crisis, slowly formed a narrative which now makes it people are either not interested in Julian Assange or have a kind of vague view. Well, he's, you know, he's been it's in some form or another like in this legal limbo for, what is it now, 13 years. So it's like the reason that like all of that has happened how could that only now be discovered to be a mistake or an error of judgment it doesn't make any sense nothing mm. new has happened there's it's it's the only way to explain it is to go back and say no it's always been wrong what's happened to julian mm. assange and so a lot of the the reporting at the time just simply didn't push back on on the wrongness as it as it was happening. So, yeah, I want to I want to because uh, uh, what I want to say first is that a few weeks ago I watched your really really great interviews, an interview series that you made on your YouTube channel, and we'll put a link to that. Um, talking to a human rights um, observer, mm -hmm. of, is that her yeah. actual job? Deeper, uh, deeper driver. Yeah, she um, she does lots of things within the legal profession. But yeah, she was the uh, court observer for the Julian Assange case and is uh, very much kind of connected to that. So uh, yeah, I, I spoke to her on several occasions to really get um, detailed information uh, about what was happening on the ground there. And it was really, really interesting. Um, and I think you're going to help me put together the videos a little bit more beautifully because <laughs> I have no technical uh, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and actually we're hoping to make a, a, a more thorough kind of documentary based on those interviews mm. that we can hopefully get out before Julian Sanders is condemned forever, if he's not already. Well, um, there's, there is the possibility that, um, you know, that he will actually have to be tried in the United States. So... Um, one wonders if, uh, even if they do extradite, if it actually might, and I haven't heard many people talk about this, but one does wonder if uh, if he does have a trial, yeah, he will be in a maximum security prison and his conditions will be even worse than they are now. But I wonder if, um, it, if they actually have to do a proper cr criminal trial with everything out in the open. Um, I wonder if it might op offer opportunities to uh, uh, for the truth to out. Um, and to and for the public to really rally behind someone who is uh, very clearly a victim here, but I think the conditions will be so bad. I, I don't know if his um, mental or physical health will be able to stand uh, stand up to it. It's it's such a a trying. It will be such a trying period. The, the next few weeks are crucial. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, um, well, I also saw the do a documentary came out in twenty twenty one that sort of goes through his case for, from initially when he was in Sweden. Uh, all the way up to, um, well, I don't know, yeah, 2021 when he was initially, uh, the extradition was rejected on mental mm -hmm. health grounds, which I think is funny because the idea is that he was, because of his mental health condition, it, he couldn't be taken to a maximum security jail in the US. He was then immediately taken back to a maximum security jail <laughs> maximum in the UK, security where he stayed yeah. for the last two years. Yeah, yeah, uh, and so really anyway. quite arbitrarily. That you know, the delays on uh, on some of this, uh, particularly that year, I think um, after the uh, extra, there was no particular reason given for that delay, and I, I believe that it took them at least a year, I think, to sort of write a. Can't remember if it was a judgment or a, a, a appeal rejection or whatever it was, but it, you know, they they took about a year to do like three pages of a four to sort of say, oh yeah, no to well, that. The, re the reason why he's been, um, he like he should have okay. 
you may say that you need this long protracted legal case against Julian Assange. Fine. But there's no reason why he should have he should have been in prison or in the embassy or, or in any of these places for the last 13 years. He should have just been out and about. Mm, yeah. Mm, like, OK, mm. maybe he can't leave the country. That's fine. Like, mm. I don't you know, Julian Assange is hard for him to. <laughs> he's one of those recognizable people in the world and he'd be able to smuggle himself out. There's no reason mm. for him to be incarcerated, certainly not in a maximum security prison. And we'll talk about the exceptional conditions under which he's in mm. that prison as well. Mm. But I just want to say, yeah, so that the main thing, and it's something that comes out of the documentary that Julian Assange himself says is the process is the punishment. And mm. that has been the case for Julian Assange mm. since 2012. He's being charged. Um, well, he's now been charged with stuff to do with extradition in the US. But for years, he, he wasn't charged with anything. Mm -hmm. And he certainly, and he still has not been convicted of anything, but mm -hmm. he's lived in actually worse than prison conditions for the last decade. Mm -hmm. So, and and very in a, in a very public way. So anybody that's thinking about doing something akin to what Assange did with WikiLeaks knows that without even being convicted, their life will likely be a living hell for the next decade, if not longer. And mm -hmm. then that's the thing: Assange in his mid fifties may be a, an american judge may say this is preposterous this whole thing <laughs> is a load of bullshit we're, mm. we're, we're throwing this case out you're a free man and everyone's like wow the system works but <laughs> he's already he's already served more time basically than he would have if he'd been convicted the day of actually mm -hmm. you know it's like um and that's really what it's all about um getting back to 2012 so what I, you know, I, I knew some stuff about this case, but it is incredibly difficult to follow the case. Firstly, because either you've been following it from 2012 uh, and taking minutes, as I'm sure you were mm. <laughs> every mm. day, on what on what the the media was saying back then and what the actual uh, accusations against Assange were back in 2012, and then mm. you're and then you've you've either kept documenting that up until now. Or you've come to the case at some point later or decided to look into it slightly more than you would have before later. And then you've had to try and dig up articles. So you're, mm. you're searching for information about what was actually said in 2012. And obviously, mostly what you find are things that are more current that refer back to 2012, which have a different take on what on uh, what the situation is because they're looking at it from the hindsight of 2018 or 2019. So it depends where he is. Is he in prison? Are the Americans involved? Have the Swedish uh, given up their case? Things are constantly changing and the reporting on the past of the case is also changed. Things are then forgotten about that are no longer necessary mm. to what's happening now. So it's like, it's like this, this constantly like evolving thing that is, that is gathering up new things that become very important and you can't, you know, the case is all hinges around this and discarding things that used to be, the case used to be hinged on. And so it's very hard to follow what's going on. And I found the documentary, I think the documentary has some faults that uh, is to do with the documentary itself. Like it doesn't explain things very clearly, but I also can appreciate, and I got this from deepest interviews, that it's very difficult to actually explain, partly because um, you're not getting an open uh, dialogue with with the authorities that are actually making the accusations. They're like they're often questioned um, by journalists or by people from WikiLinks who catch them and try and ask them, you know, why is this happening? What are you doing? What is the legal precedent for this? And they and they often just try and uh, evade the question. So you don't really know why things are happening, and you have to kind of speculate on what is going on. But anyway, let's go back to 2012. Um, I think it's 2012, right? When uh, yeah, I, I got yeah, I got mixed up earlier. The initial allegations, uh, the 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 legal problems that he had began in 2010, but the actual right. going into the embassy began in uh, that's right 2012. So yeah, sorry I misspoke there. But I I don't get. I mean, and maybe you don't understand this either, but Julian Sancho was in Sweden and he had sex with two women in Sweden. And this is this is from what Deepa says. The two women then went to uh, the police, not the local police, but to a, another police station, which someone they knew or one of 
one of the women basically went to the police station to sort of try and ask Julian Assange to get um, an STD test or whatever, right? STI. Mm, mm, Is that mm. right? And then... Yeah. Um, and she kind of got the other woman involved because the other woman had also slept with Assange, which kind of makes sense. If she's worried that Assange has got something, she might want to tell this other person. Okay. But I don't know why you go to the... I don't... Firstly, I don't know what, what the police involvement is with that unless julian sanji is refusing to do it i think i think what it was is i I think first of all that i think there's slightly different culture and slightly different laws in sweden um and so it's just a bit of a different thing so i think that the first woman thought that it for whatever reason whether right or wrong thought it was uh appropriate to to ask the police and she knew they the two women knew that um that they'd both slept with julian and so I think that they um, they decided to go and see the police at that point to see if they could um, compel him to take an STI test. However, um, uh, and again, the reason that it's a bit, so much is messy about that whole thing, but uh, they had asked Julian to take an STI test. And I believe that originally he had said no, because I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't have any diseases, but then eventually he did agree, uh, but then they were like, well, we want to get him to make sure he does it more quickly. So let's go to the police. I mean, no one knows what's in everyone's heads at this at this particular but, juncture. Okay, but that's, that kind of makes that's sense. That's the kind of thing that was going on at that time. He's, a book he doesn't by, live in Sweden. He may leave Sweden. He's, yeah. He said first that he wasn't going to do it. Maybe they're thinking, yeah. oh, he's just said yes. He's not, he's not committed to doing this. So we'll get the police involved. It's a possibility, right? Okay, fair yeah. enough. Um, but they go to the police. And, um, and this again, the documentary just doesn't just mentions that there was an investigation, uh, into rape, but it, but from what I understand from deepest interview, the women themselves never accused him of rape. They went with the explicit intent of getting him to do this test. And through the course of interviews with the police, which I don't know why they were even interviewing the women I don't understand any of that. The police themselves deduced that there was a possibility of rape without it, the, the women accusing him, right? Uh, as I understand it, yeah. Yeah. But I don't, yeah. It's, it's a very, very thorny issue and is uh, and is not one I'm that comfortable about discussing on camera using third-hand knowledge. I would say that, that um, uh, Nils Melzler's uh, book on this is very... Uh, careful and thorough and uses the available documentation um, uh, from the police. I think it is fair to say that whatever happened there, the police were very keen and prosecutors were very keen to treat that case very unusually from the outset. Um, And I think they probably would have found any reason to detain Julian Assange. I mean, they probably, you know, if it had gone on for, if his situation pumping out all of this material about US um, war crimes had gone on for another six months, they would probably have got him on a parking violation. You know, they would have found something that would have got him into um, uh, 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 into territory, geographical territory, which meant that they could um, further uh, uh, interrogate uh, and uh, intimidate him. I mean, and it's it's an interesting thing, actually. One of you know, you mentioned about like narrative threads that have dropped out over time. One of them is uh, that the the uh, the way that the uh, police originally. Oh, sorry, I just slightly lost my train of thought. Um, the, where was I going with that? Um, the, the oh yeah. That- so, so what? For a long time. Julian Assange was saying, look, I, I'm not going to go physically to where you want me to go, because if I do that, you're going to use these. Uh, you're going to uh, you're going to uh, get me on uh, espionage uh, on the in, in the Espionage Act or other national security legislation. And there was a very popular narrative um, in the press for years and years and years, which said, Oh, that's just Julian Assange. He's a narcissist. He's a um, he. Uh, he's so self-important. He's deluded. He's paranoid. 
Um, and, I, and, you know, of course you can go and, um, and face these uh, sexual allegations uh, in Sweden. And of course, he'd made all sorts of different accommodations, including, you know, uh, offering the police a video link up. And I think he, again, I, I, I can't remember the specific detail, but I think he went, I think he offered to see the police even physically in Sweden at the time. But I think by the time he got to the embassy, he was like, well, I'm not going to go out of the embassy to, to go um, just like hanging around on Civvy Street because the, the, uh, the US and UK authorities will find an excuse to get me. So um, so that, that was a popular narrative that Julian Assange was just this paranoid narcissist uh, and that he could just face justice and it would all have been sorted out by 2013. But of course, what did happen? Well, he stayed in the embassy and then MI5 came in, smashed him out um, uh, with the connivance of the uh, uh, of the new uh, administration in Ecuador, uh, uh, which uh, ran the embassy. And Julian uh, Assange's prediction on that was completely correct. It's like we were talking about earlier about conspiracy theories. You know, sometimes the, the world is sometimes operated as a conspiracy. And of course, these organizations like the CIA, that's... That's what they do. That's how they operate. That's why they're called covert. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think that's it's a really interesting shift um, between what was happening in, in when he first. So what happens is when he's in Sweden, um, this rape allegation comes out of the the police interviews with the women, and Julian Sange says, "Well, he's in Sweden." According to the documentary, he will come and discuss it with them. And uh, this, for the, whoever it is, like the the people at the police that discuss these things, but they just kept uh, putting putting off the interview. And obviously, this is a busy time for Julian Assange. <laughs> like the WikiLeaks is is kicking off. Uh, he doesn't want to just be hanging around Sweden waiting for this interview. Uh, and eventually, the Swedish authorities say, "Okay, look, we've we've messed you around too long. You can go to the UK, right?" So he goes to the UK. Um, and this, this again, I don't understand exactly what he's doing in the UK before he goes into the embassy and what forced his hand to then move into the embassy uh, because he's is walking around the UK at the time. Um, I don't know if it's because at that moment Sweden then call him back. Uh, I, I think that I think there might have been a new public prosecutor who came in. Um, and again, can't remember the exact details, but I think there was a new public prosecutor. Uh, and and they decided to initiate uh, something more proactive. Uh, there have been various points during this whole um, saga where it seemed that Julian was free or on the brink of freedom. Um, so, in fact, uh, as you may well know, uh, when Julian got together with his wife, who was uh, also one of his lawyers in the early days, Stella, um, they... Uh, around about whenever it was, 2015, 16, they had a couple of children. Um, you know, even though Julian was stuck in the embassy, they, they thought it was going to be fine because there were all indications that everything was going to be okay. Um, and again, this is uh, going back to uh, what I've been watching of uh, Craig Murray's uh, reports lately. But the theory is that, um, that in 2016 was when there was a particularly important um, WikiLeaks document dump um, and that was about the CIA's Vault 7 um, and Vault 7 contained a lot of um, uh, basically how the CIA conduct dirty tricks uh, and and surveillance uh, and the theory is and it sounds quite convincing from Craig is that um, you know that was the point at which they said mm, we're not having this at all we're, we are forcing through a um uh regardless of whatever happens we are going to get this this person and we're going to um we're going to drag them through through the courts and through the um uh prison system for as uh, for as long as we need to uh so i, I so you know julian santos fortunes have varied and that also means that his fortunes could vary again but the psychological and physical um pressures that he's under um and i think julian is uh He's somewhere on the spectrum, which uh, you know it must make it even harder to cope in in those kind of conditions. Uh, so, yeah, uh, but things things have fluctuated with that case. I, I guess one thing I'd encourage people to think about is it is it is true that the the case over you know the last fifteen years has been complicated, but you know life's complicated, 
um, you know, I, I would encourage people to, if they do have negative perspectives on uh, Julian Assange and on WikiLeaks, ask the question and then check it out online because actually all the information is is out there online. It's just a bit of a pain to find. Um, and the real the real story, which I think pretty clearly, well, very clearly exonerates uh, Julian Assange, is is available. It's just that the mainstream haven't pushed it. Um, even though the mainstream, I think, are, are aware of it and uh, and do believe that he should be released. Yeah, well, I don't know if I'd say that it's it's su super clear, and I think that's that's really the crucial. Um, it's certainly not clear at all, and in fact, it doesn't look very likely at all that he should be in prison or charged with anything. And that's yeah. the way to look at it. Um, mm -hmm. What actually has happened is very unclear, uh, and I think that is just just the case with with so many sorts sorts of issues particularly these sort of legal issues where uh it involves government agencies which are by their nature very secretive and that that plays into this conspiracy mindset that well we live uh in a society with kind of open institutions um that do things by the book and that's the other thing about no, no, none of this has been done by the book um and so if, right, you, yeah. if you believe in that kind of structure, then you are very skeptical that that Julian Sanch, like he wouldn't be in the situation he's in unless there was something to it. Right. I think that's right. And, and one thing I'd say about that is um, I think that uh, there must be a lot of people um, in middle England or who are centrists or center right or whatever. Uh, I'm sure members of my own family would be would be the same thinking, yeah, well, you know, he's just going through the process. Um, the judicial system is fair and it's effective. Well, yeah, but even if that is the case, let's say that the British judicial system is the best in the world. A lot of people believe that the British judicial system is the best in the world. Okay, fine, let's believe that. But in this particular case, no way. It is being pushed. It is a cruel and unusual situation. Um, the courts are being perverted by national security. Maybe every other case that's tried in Britain is brilliantly done, is brilliant. And, it, and we're, we're the envy of the world with our judicial system. But in this one, I can absolutely guarantee you everything being done is peculiar. And 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 Swedish as well, because obviously people and Sweden, the, yeah. the Scandinavians. So I just I was very quickly. Uh, but but, but Britain does Britain does have a reputation for, for an excellent it legal does. system. It does, um, and, and, um, and and maybe that's true, and maybe that's correct. But I'm just saying mm, this is a really this is a peculiar case. Well, I, I, there is, I think there's definitely a thing where, where people will will quickly condemn other countries. Which is, which is so like ludicrous when you think about it. Well, what do you think they people in those countries think about you? You know, what do you think people in Russia think about American justice? You know, and it's like as soon as you hear, oh, there's there's uh, corruption and there's conspiracy abound in like China and 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 uh, Russia and and the Middle East and the, there's no justice. It's like, but here there is absolutely fine. It's plain sailing mm. all the time. You know, it's like how how can what, I mean? It's almost basically racism in 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 effect. A kind of deep down, like there is something different about these places that they can't get it together in any shape or form, and and we're just unfaltering in our in our great pursuit of justice. Um, even <laughs> when you know it's very clear that what Julian Sanders did was very damaging for a lot of powerful people and institutions. And I just, because we did touch on, on the Swedish thing, I just want to quickly go through a few things I, I got from that. So the Swedish the Swedish call him back. Um, he refuses to go. Um, and there is, uh, it's very common if you're in another country that the authorities can come to you. And the Swedes could have come to the UK. Yeah, they I refused to do it yeah. for a long time. Um, mm. Then, um, the the um whatever it is the statue on the issues uh, on some of them were uh ending so mm. they said that they mm. would do it and i guess mm. because they, they 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 were pressured like you're obviously it, it's all about showing that you are the one that are not at fault julian Assange is at fault for not coming for not um complying with what we're doing but at that stage it was clear that sweden were dragging the heels they could come and then mm. and even though they in the way it was reported was that they couldn't right for mm -hmm. so long and mm -hmm. then suddenly mm -hmm. they they admitted themselves yes we could and we will come and they decided that they were going to and then in the moment that they were supposed to come 
because Julian Sanchez was in the Ecuadorian embassy and at the time seeking asylum to Ecuador, there had to be an agreement between Ecuador and Sweden for the meeting to happen. Uh, and yeah. the Swedish authorities decided to issue those like documents to Ecuador for them to sign um, mm -hmm. within like a few days of when they wanted the meeting to be. Basically mm -hmm. meaning that there was no time for the paperwork to get done in order for the meeting to take place the ecuadorian um embassy and and legal system didn't get the paperwork through in time and the meeting was missed and again it's mm -hmm. like yeah. it's these kind of things well you know you can say is it incompetence but again Ju Ju julian Sanchez hasn't met the swedish prosecutors which or not prosecutors but you know investig investigators like he hadn't been charged with anything and this is the other thing yeah. i don't understand when he came out of prison, he was on bail. Mm, mm, or he, mm. came, he, he was arrested for breaking bail, but I don't know mm. what the bail was. Well, I, I believe that he was actually, I think his original 50 week sentence was for skipping bail. And usually I think the sentence for skipping bail in a situation like that is like, I don't know, a couple of weeks or something like that or, or nothing. Um, you, 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 you've picked up on a few uh, points that, that, that I, 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 it is complicated. I can't remember everything of it. Um, but yeah, I think his original sentence in Belmarsh was for skipping bail. 50 weeks for, for in high what? security prison. For skipping, for skipping bail. On what though? I, I can't remember the details. That's the thing. Like, I don't, it's net, and these <laughs> things, it's really hard to follow. Um, <laughs> one more thing I just want to say, um, is so one of the big things about why doesn't Julian just go to Sweden? Mm, um, mm. and face justice and why hadn't he done that all those years ago right mm, was mm. That the Swedish it's Julian Sanchez's team seemed to believe that he was going to be arrested in Sweden now the, the Swedes argued that they were just going to interview him um, they, and they may have charged him depending on what he said but if you, mm. you know, presumably if he was innocent they would have just uh, um, inter the interview would have been enough but there was this thing about Sweden, right? Unlike most other countries, it doesn't have, um, what's the word? Uh, it, it's got indefinite detention without charge. So this, right. is, and this is something that yeah. relates to yeah. the sort of terrorism laws that kind of came in and the Patriot Act and stuff in America and, mm -hmm. and to some degree in the UK. On those specific cases of like basically Muslims, that like you could mm -hmm. hold mm -hmm. them without charge because you might not have the evidence uh, at the time, but if you let them go, it could be too risky, right? Mm -hmm. But generally, it's pretty strict. Like, I think in the UK, it's a few hours. Like, if you're mm -hmm. not going to arrest someone after interviewing them for a few hours, you have to let them go. That's pretty mm -hmm. much uh, how it's supposed to be. Um, but in Sweden, well, no one seemed to know. But when they asked the Swedes what the law was in that situation, they said there was no two-hour maximum and stuff. It was indefinite how much mm, you could be held mm. so that was one of the reasons i think that he, he wouldn't go but the fact it they didn't know like the, the swedes wouldn't say if you if he was arrested or just being interviewed well, well also i think there was, a, there was another issue which deeper driver talks about in those interviews with me which is that um there had just been two terror suspects who had been um extradited from sweden as well to egypt and i think had faced torture in egypt um so I think the Swedish legal system is pretty tough, uh, and they are, which is a nice way of putting it, really. Uh, but they were—they had uh, done extraordinary rendition um, for these two uh, terror suspects, and so the possibility of Julian being in that um, uh, that uh, in a, a Swedish uh, police station could very quickly, um, even as early as two thousand and you know the early two thousand and tens, he could have actually gone off to a black site in Egypt. Um, Quite regardless of uh, of where he's ended up since, I don't think there were. I did ask this question of Deeper. I said, you know, w was there a way around any of this? Could he have faced justice at some point? Could it all have been sorted out? And just through talking it through, it, it doesn't seem that there was ever really a, a way out for Julian. I don't. I don't think he could have made different or better decisions um, in yeah. terms of uh, how to I handle mean, his did... own safety. He did um, some very, except for not doing the reports in the first place. But those reports are vital for the for the functioning of democracy. Um, I know that you've got to get away, so we'll just finish with this. Um, just to bring it back to what I started with talking about. Yeah, I think he and he did some very clever things, but it didn't matter what he did. 
it wasn't enough. So one of the things was he got the, uh, the lawyer, the Spanish lawyer, uh, Balthazar Garzon, who is uh, very famous for getting Pinochet when he was in the UK, which set a precedent for if you commit crimes in your own country, under international law, you can be tried for them in another country, right? Because obviously, you know, if you're in your own country, you make the laws and everything mm. you say is legal, right? You can mm. do what you want to your own people. Um, but this was the idea that that's not the case. Um, and this this relates because obviously Julian Assange, who's not not American, and he's, mm. he's reporting on... It's like the, the main thing to take home, I think, about Julian Assange is like, if you like at all any of the insightful journalism coming out of Ukraine at the moment and what the Russians are doing there. If you think that's a good thing, if you think that it's the journalists reporting on that shouldn't one day be sent to Russia to stand mm -hmm. on trial for what mm -hmm. they've done, mm -hmm. then you've got to stand up for Julian Assange. But I'll just, I'll just end with while, while he was in the embassy, they got a UN working group on arbitrary detention to do a report. And this goes back to the idea of institutions and reports and mm. what do they actually mean? Because this was the UN. Um, it was a very comprehensive report on what was going on with Julian Assange. Um, involved the uh, UN uh, blah, blah on torture, expert on torture, whatever. Rapporteur. Rapporteur. Yeah, yeah. And they, uh, they came out um, explicitly, Julian Assange should be released. Mm. That was mm. the finding of the report. That goes to the British government. Foreign Secretary at the time was Philip Hammond, and his response to that was ridiculous. And what you know, where's where's Sonia Soda when you need her, right? It's like <laughs> that. These 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 institutions, the UN, their reports in this particular situation doesn't matter, just as they mm. didn't matter when when we went into Iraq. But but hey, if the UN come out and say Putin is a war criminal. This is serious stuff. It's the UN. We've got to listen to them. It's not. It's all meaningless. It's all political game playing. You pick when the institution is on the side of the politic, the political position that you are on and, and the uh, positions that you're pushing for. You champion these things. And when they're not, you don't. And that, that makes the whole thing a joke. And it's actually these people like Sonia Soda, the Guardian, the British government, the Tory party and the Labour party. They're the ones that are destroying the institutions in this country, just as much as someone like Trump is in the US. Democrat Party are the same thing because they ignore these institutions when they disagree with their positions and they champion them when they don't. And that's why nobody believes in these organizations anymore. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that's why you shouldn't get the vaccine and uh, WHO are <laughs> all aliens. Good night. <laughs> See you later. Bye. <laughs>